Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. More than 250 years ago, a displaced group of Muscogee-speaking Upper Creek Indians established a settlement just outside present-day Brooksville, located north of Tampa. Chukachati, which means Red House or Red Town, was a prosperous, self-sustaining native community of deer hunters, traders, farmers, and cattlemen. It was one of the first settlements of the Creek people in Florida. The town was so prosperous that Americans erroneously considered Chukachati the seat of the Seminole Nation. With the American demand for removal, its chief, Black Dirt, accepted federal payments and relocated his band to the Oklahoma Territory in 1836. During subsequent removal operations, the Army burned the abandoned town. Its location vanished into history. In May 2014, Seminole Tribe of Florida representatives cut a ribbon to unveil a roadside marker on the side of State Road 50 that commemorates Chukachati. In 2019, Worksville City Council, seeking to pinpoint the exact location of the long gone town, approved access to the city-owned 56-acre Griffin Prairie. With the support of tribal leaders, the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, and the historic Hernando Preservation Society, they secured a federal grant to delineate Chukachati. Sean Norman, acting director for Gary, returns to the podcast to discuss the history of Chukachati and what Gary found during their excavations and survey. Sean Norman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Hey, Patrick. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. What is Chukachati, and what does it mean to us in English? called Red Town or sometimes Red House. This is a uh, Yogi translation for Chukachati. That refers to a division within Creek society where you had reds and whites. This is in addition to the clan system that they have. Traditionally, you had towns that were divided into red towns or white towns, which represented what they were responsible for as far as war and diplomacy. Conceivably, in that regard, Chokochetti was at least intended to be a red town when it was originally founded. These people originated from central Alabama, probably originally in the town of Atassi, later being known as Eufaula. And then you have a series of Eufaulas in South Georgia, Central Florida, and then those people eventually make it to Chukchetti. There are such as Peter McQueen's group, Jackson's antagonist during the first Seminole War, after his villages are burned out of the panhandle. He ends up moving down by the Peace River. You've got the Topicalige, possibly connected. There are a whole variety of them, but the difference is that Chukchetti was a early village as far as creeks. And it would have predated the red stick divide that you get from the creek. When was it founded, approximately? As the village was founded in 1767. Some writers have called Chukachetti the seminal capital. How accurate is that assessment? Well, I don't know if you can really say anything's ever uh, capital with the Seminoles because there's not really a unified body. It's not a nation or anything like that at this point. What you have are a series of bands. So you have the creek people... South Georgia and all across Alabama in the 1600s, 1700s, into the 1800s. And in reality, that is just dozens of different groups of people. Similar language in the Muscogean language, you have lots of minor variations. 
And then you also have some isolates like Yuchi. The thing is, you can't really look at the seminal as a single body. Instead, you're looking at them by minor cultural differences, linguistic groups. Chukacheti would have been relatively isolated because they said that it's an early village set up in 1767 by these descendants of central Alabama, these Muscogee Creeks. Most of the other seminals in Florida are largely the Chidi or Miccosukee. Minor differences, but differences still. And on top of that, think of the Alaska bands. You've got groups like Cowkeeper's Dynasty. So that's people like King Payne. You've got Bowlegs, Micanope, all come from that. So there you do have some sort of dynastic system. On the other hand, exactly how much control or influence they have over other groups further in the territory, and then especially other groups that might have bigger differences, such as the people of Kukachati, it's hard to tell who there is really sort of any sort of central leadership. It's an important town because it's early. A lot of maps from the late 1700s only show towns like Cuscoilla up around Micanopy and then Chukachati on it, suggesting that these were at least two early major towns. But you can't really say that there's any sort of central leadership or capital or anything like that. People come and go at different times, sort of in power, and that usually tends to be more event-related, such as Peter and the Queen's uprising or, or Osceola's uprising. And you set out to confirm where this town was. Chukachati, when it's initially founded, is particularly far south. Going back to a quasi-depopulation of the native groups in Florida during the first Spanish period, you have a void as groups like the Calusa and the Ais, Tequesta, all dissolve to some degree, not entirely, but to some degree. So this opens up Florida. So you'd have had Creek moving throughout Florida that entire time. And everything, when you're talking about Creeks, revolves around the deerskin trade. And that spurs them to hunt more and more and go farther and farther abroad. And since Florida wasn't really claimed by other powerful groups like, say, the Choctaw or Chickasaw or anything like that, it would have been a natural place to go into. So Creeks would have definitely been familiar with Florida all the way down to the Key. However, you don't have a lot of settlement that far south. So the main patterns that you see for settling Florida are a lot of people move south of the Alabama border once you get more U.S. settlement in the area. And then especially as different Europeans exchange hands in Florida. So at the start of, say, the First Creek War and the First Seminole War, you have a large band of or several groups living in the Panhandle of Florida, with some other groups living around a latch. Jackson comes in, burns a series of villages in 1818, and that moves a lot of the population into Latchua Prairie. And then, as I mentioned, people like Peter McQueen go well farther south down towards the Peace River. When you think about that in 1818, right? That means that people at Chukachetti have already been there for almost 60 years at that point, 50 years. The central part of Florida just really wasn't occupied. When these Muscogee people came down, they had their pick of the land. They clearly chose the area for some particular purpose. And then some other kind of notable points on maybe some of the value of Chukachetti or influence is that if you look at the way the reservation was drawn up following the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, you can see that there's a left jog in the reservation line, a jog to the west on the western boundary. This actually looks like it was bent to include Chukachetti specific. You can say that there's some sort of that, but I don't know about central leadership. Certainly none of the stuff that leads up to the Second Seminole War actually takes place at Chukachetti, as Black Dirt is one of the chiefs or leaders for the Seminole who's actually relatively compliant and agreeable with the United States government. 
And actually, at the start of the Second Seminole War, he agrees to emigrate with at least most of his town. Seminole towns will go through a variety of leaders. Sometimes you'll see that where a town might move when it gets a new leader. But really, the only place where we see like a main dynasty is, again, with the Alatra Prairie, Nikastuki, Cowkeeper, Bowlegs, that kind of line. For Chukchetti, we end up with a variety of leaders. For example, we get one leader in the 1820s named Sanaha, and then later on, we get closer to the war, a leader pops up known as Blackter. Now, Blackter is associated with a few towns in the area, such as a Seminole village located near present-day Red Level. It's unclear exactly what his initial relationship is, whether he is, in fact, even Muskogee, but he ends up coming in. Now, he had been a former Red Stick. He had been resistant to the U.S. government at some point. When the negotiations are coming up in the mid-1830s, as you're getting closer to the war, around 1835, he's one of the ones who elects not to fight. Largely, it appears to be just he didn't want to put his family through this again. Maybe he sort of understood, I guess, the inevitableness of this, but he elects immediately to move his people. By April 1836, they're already being transported out. So when the campaigns are going on through the area, Black Dirt's not around anymore. Unfortunately for him, his uh, wife and child's family dies on the trip to Indian Territory. With Black Dirt and his people gone, what became of Chokachetti? Chokachetti, for the town proper, this is a close proximity to the Cove of the Withlacoochee, where a large portion of the Seminole are residing and fortified in a just difficult to access area. Chukachani is still somewhat prominent. It's focal point for the U.S. military because it represents the southern boundary to the General Cove area. It appears on maps because the town had actually been fairly prosperous up into at least the 1820s. There were several roads that lead to it or at least lead nearby. So it became a reference point for people. That leads into Winfield Scott's three-pronged campaign. Was Chukachati a town, a village, a series of villages in the same proximity? One of the confusing things about Chukachati is you can describe it as a village or villages. You can also describe it as a region, and you can also describe it as a people. Hence, if you were to say the Chukachatis, you'd be referring to Muscogee people of West Central Florida. What happens is on military maps throughout the war, we do see a number of other towns pop up. We see maps labeled as Eufaula Tustanagi. And of course, Tustanagi is just a term for a type of seminal leader, seminal title. Eufaula, again, referring to the original town that people at Chukachetti came from. That suggests that these are people related to Chukachetti. Additionally, you see another town called Black Dirt's Town pop up. Presumably, since Black Dirt's not there, this is also referring to the people of Chukachetti. It's not that all people left, because again, no Seminole leader really has total control over anyone. There's still quite a bit of agency, obviously, examples like Osceola. People definitely kept occupying the area, and the area was very useful from an agricultural standpoint. In the past, it had been listed both as extremely productive and as somewhat depleted. This largely depends on who the author is and why they're writing it. Whenever it's discussing the conditions for the Seminole, often, but not always, they listed as rougher, not really great areas. They do a lot of Seminole villages. On the other hand, once you get closer to land speculation and homesteading, suddenly the land gets described very, very positively. Seminole throughout the cove and large areas of Florida continue to return during the war, even after they're chased out of the area or villages are burned. And Chukchetti was certainly no exception. 
there were smaller populations moving around, they definitely would have reoccupied, maybe not the original village, because it probably would have been too obvious being along the relatively open area along roads, but they would have occupied the other area. And then you have other groups like Tiger Tail. Tiger Tail ends up becoming the predominant seminal leader who moves through the area, and he has a small band of warriors with him, of 100 or so, maybe less. He has a variety of very short-term encampment throughout Hernando and Citrus County. And so he's credited for being the leader of the Chukachetti region for a while. He would have been a Tallahassee, distinct from the Muscogee that had been there before, but likely would have integrated anyone who's willing to resist with him. So Black Dirt and his people leave. What happens then? In March 1836, you got Winfield Scott takes over command of the army. Now, he takes over command while Gaines is still floundering at Camp Izzard. After Gaines is relieved from that predicament, Scott takes over his planning. And his, his idea is that he's going to assemble a large force to envelop the Seminole around the Cove of the Wicklacoochee. He's going to go back into the same places where Clinch and, well, technically Dade as well, but Clinch and Gaines have had poor outings. So he's going to envelop it with an army from the north where he's going to be commanding with Duncan Clinch that will move out from Fort Greene south. Then you've got General Eustace, who will move out of the east coast of Florida with an army coming across the state. They'll eventually encounter places like Paliklakaha, Burnett, and then enter from the east side. And then finally, you'd have Colonel William Lindsay, who is a officer with the 2nd U.S. Artillery, who would command a unit of artillerymen and volunteers that would move up from Fort Brooke and would head to the Chukachetti region. Now, the idea is that all three armies would converge approximately at the same time. Each army was instructed multiple times a day to fire off a cannon to kind of signal the other armies as to their location. Now, problems kind of start off with a supply issue. Men can matriculate in through mid-March. Men and supplies are matriculate in through mid-March into Fort Brook. Around March 15th, Lindsay's finally at full strength. He's got around 1,200 men, consisting predominantly of Alabama volunteers, with some support from Florida volunteers, Louisiana volunteers, and then some artillery regulars. The problem that he has is he doesn't have wagons, and he doesn't have access to a lot of horses. He doesn't really have enough equipment to create a supply line that can keep him going on the campaign. He elects to build a supply. He marches up the 14 Road, but the Seminole have burned several bridges along the 14 Road, so they have to stop and repair it before he makes it to his destination, which is where the 14 Road crosses the Hillsborough River. There he builds a supply depot, which will be known as Fort Alabama. And then he stations the Florida volunteers to garrison the fort. And then he turns around and marches back to Fort Brook. He makes it back to Fort Brook late on March 21st. And waiting for him is he has orders from Winfield Scott to be in the vicinity of Chukachetti by March 25th. The problem is here, he's already behind schedule and he hasn't even really started. His army, which is known as the Army of the Center, then turns around on March 22nd and goes back up towards Fort Alabama. And this time they have what wagons and what horses could be brought with them. But they've got only about six days worth of ration. So they march back up to Fort Alabama. They replace the Florida volunteers with the Louisiana volunteers as the garrison to the fort. And then a little bit north of the fort, they turn to the northwest onto what we call the Toad Chedco Road. And this would be somewhere south of present-day Dade City. And they march northwest 
towards Chugachev. Along the way, they encounter multiple villages, such as the village of Elishuteka. And then there are several towns, once again, like several Seminole villages. It's sometimes hard to tell whether villages were contemporaneous or just in the same vicinity at different times. But you have a variety of other villages like Toa up there. For reference, for anyone who's had beads on a string, Elechiteka was likely the village where a lot of those artifacts were recovered. That probably represents Elechiteka. In the account, get to that village, they dismantle that, build a light breastwork, sleep there for the night, and then continue up the road, up northwest of the Toa road, encountering various villages, generally burning them along the way. The Seminoles know they're moving out the entire time. They're following them. They're seminal putting Fort Alabama on siege at this point, but the main force is continuing up. The Seminole aren't really engaging them in outright battle. They're mostly harassing the rear. Anytime the wagons and the troops pulling up the rear guard are out in the open, Seminoles tend to open fire on them. Usually the rear guard will form up, return fire, and Seminoles will get out of musket range and yell a little bit. They're constantly harassing Definitely making the army nervous, but not really inflicting a lot of damage or even really slowing them down to that much. Around March 27th, so now technically two days behind schedule, their scouts report they're within a couple miles of Chukachetti and that they're essentially separated by a hammock. They elect to set up camp and they set up a small breastwork and camp there. And this is what's known as Camp Broadnay. Sometimes you'll see it listed as Camp Broadnay. And that was named after the quartermaster for the Army of the Center. They camped there for two nights just outside of Chukachetti. On the second night, they actually are attacked by the Seminoles, except again, rather than being a large pitch battle, it's a small raiding force that mostly attacks the horse, which is probably more of what the breastwork was designed for as a horse pen, not really there to protect the soldiers themselves. They're able to form up, return fire, and some will just disappear into the woods. So again, unnerving, bad for morale, but not really heavily damage inflicting. In fact, the U.S. forces sustained no casualties at all in that engagement. The next day, they set out and they march into Chubichetti, and Chubichetti is predictably empty for two reasons. One, Blackter took presumably a large portion of the population with him to Arkansas Territory. And then in addition to that, the Seminoles are well aware of the military presence in the vicinity. So they know if anyone was living in the village, they would know not to be there at that time. The Seminole presence had actually increased the closer Lindsay got toward Chukachetti. He actually marches through the town and leaves it unmolested doesn't burn it, doesn't do anything, and instead proceeds farther north where he sets up another encampment called Camp Chisholm near modern-day Lake Lindsay. Once again, this is a rectangular breastwork that they set up. They're now north of Chukachetti, and they're just waiting for one or both of the armies to finally reach them. The problem is, is that, as I said, they left with six days of ration. We're on the 30th now, and so they're out of food. Obviously, theoretically, they could go back to Fort Alabama, their supply depot, but they don't. Instead, what happens is while they're scouting around, they come across a significant portion of free-ranging cattle. Presumably, these would have been cattle associated with Chukachetti. So they're able to butcher them, and that gives them enough food for a couple more days. And then they spend a couple days trying to gather more food in the area, see if they can stay in the campaign. They really don't encounter large bands of Seminole, but are able to kill at least one Seminole leader in the area. 
eventually on April 1st, still having not made contact with either army, they elect that they have to go back to Fort Brooke. So they turn around, go back down the Toachetka Road, briefly talk to the garrison at Fort Alabama, and then make their way back to Fort Brooke on April 4th. As I mentioned, this whole thing was based on timing, right? That Technically, Lindsay thought I had the shortest distance to go and maybe the most direct route is using some generally existing roads or seminal trail. The problem is, is Winfield Scott actually leaves Fort Drain after the proposed date for when Lindsay was already supposed to be at Chukachetti. Winfield Scott and Duncan Clinch arrive on the scene around Chukachetti on April 3rd. They see this unburned village and they burn it themselves in what becomes the direct route towards Fort Brook, and then they continue straight south rather than going towards Chudka and then the Fort King Road. In this regard, Chukchetti is unceremoniously burned with no resistance. Eustace ends up arriving in the Cove of the Witlacoochee a few days later and then realizes nobody's around and then also makes his way to Fort Brook, where the three armies eventually regather. So no actual battles, just skirmishing and light infantry fire. They put up a minor fight shortly after he crosses south side. But yeah, he's not able to really get them to engage. And part of this, you're talking about well over 3,000 soldiers roaming around. While the Seminole forces are really good at tracking U.S. forces, they really don't have a large enough force to page all three on. They might be able to coalesce and gauge one, but they can easily dot, easily move around, which is exactly what they do. What is General Scott doing at this point? With Scott, Scott has other priorities that end up popping up during this time. There remain some actions throughout the month of April, which is moving back and forth between Fort Drain. The road between Fort Brook and Fort Drain is more well-charted at this point. So there is some continued movement through the area. Eventually, Fort Alabama gets relieved. That gets blown up when William Foster booby traps it. And then on the way back to Fort Brook, that's where you get the Battle of Tenota Sasso. I believe you covered in another episode. So Winfield Scott, his thing is the Creek are putting up a pretty good resistance in southern Alabama to their removal. Scott is called up for that. Scott gets the tradition for not fighting during the summer. You got a few issues of where the volunteers who are on short-term enlistments, typically three months, are all due up, usually around beginning of May. His force is about to be about, at best, a third of what it was. He's got other priorities because he's commanding the entire Eastern District. He pulls out, and then that leads into Richard Keith Call's campaign, which we've discussed in other podcasts. Is this the last we hear of Chukachetti? The Chukachetti region still becomes a focal point because the Cove of the Witlacoochee remains important throughout the war. Now, you can say that by the winter of 1837, that the major engagements have moved down to South Florida with Okeechobee, subsequent battles at Loxahatchee. The Seminole operate in a fluid manner, in which case, as soon as an area is vacated and there's no military presence, Seminole are able to pretty well move back in there. Regardless of the danger, still have to feed themselves and their families. This is still a relatively protected place that soldiers don't know well to replant crops. So as the war goes on, the shroud of war clears for the areas. More and more of it gets mapped, particularly Henry Prince goes through there several times. We know that there are return actions, reoccupations, both in like the Alachua Prairie. Chris Kimball covered a lot of that with the Alachua Ambush. And then you've got actions around Fort King. And then you've got subsequent movement throughout the Cove of the Witlacoochee. So you end up with these series of forts that get constructed in the area to keep an eye on the vicinity, on the locale. Part of this is associated with the exceedingly uh, 
complicated fort system that Jessa starts that then goes into Taylor's fort system. You end up with Forts Cross, DeSoto, and Anataliga that get constructed in the area. Additionally, patrols have to go through the area, a lot of times around planting season, harvesting season, and then just before the harvest with the green corn dam. So there are some subsequent movements. Colonel Davenport moves through and makes some reports on traveling through the area. Bennett Riley in 1840 talks about a battle where he attacked the Seminole stronghold at Chukachetti. He encountered a small group of Seminoles that included women and children, killed and wounded both combatants and non-combatants there, and then made it sound like it was a much larger place. And it was subsequently when they went back to check that area in the fall, there was really no evidence that any of the crops had been replanted since the last time he'd moved through. You also get another engagement with a, a Captain Bell who talked about attacking a town on the east side of the hammock, although he describes the Anatoliga hammock which is a little confusing sometimes in the descriptions because you have both the Chukachetti hammock and the Anatoliga hammock. In certain maps, certain descriptions, they're described as one long hammock that extends through present-day Hernando and Citrus County, and other times they're separated a little bit like we see today. So it's unclear exactly whether or not he's talking about Chukachetti itself or maybe farther north, but still would have been considered in the region, in which case he does come across a fairly substantial criminal party that tries to defend its village, ultimately still ends up being a relatively small skirmish in the scheme of things. So what was the impetus to get out there and survey slash excavate Chukachetti? This was brought up oh, about six years ago to me by a couple members of the Historic Commando Preservation Society. This is a project that they've been interested in for a couple decades. There have been some previous investigations at into Chukachetti with some results. They just wanted to see if, if someone else could do an investigation of it. So in steps Gary. What was Gary's goal? Our goal was we got a grant through the National Park Service American Battlefield Protection Program. Our research objective was simple but very widespread. And it was to document any historical or archaeological evidence of the Seminole village or villages at Chugachetti and to document any evidence of the military campaigns associated with it, specifically Lindsay's campaign, but really any interaction that we could find at all. Part of it is, is archival information. There's always more historical information to be found, right? It's just you never know where you're going to find it. There's really not a lot written about Chukachetti. There are a few accounts here and there. Most of the actual written accounts, we've got one in the 1770s by Bernard Roman, and then you've got some other accounts in the 1820s, 1830s. They wanted to see if maybe we could better define the history of the town and then try to see if we could locate some of the archaeological features. We did have some building blocks to go on. But starting with the background research, what happened was my colleague Jonathan Dean did an exhaustive search on a cartographic study where he went through every map all the way into the 1600s that he could find with any of the towns related to Chukachetti or its history. That's how we get back all the way to knowing that Chukachetti is related to Eufaula, Greater Eufaula, and Atassi, located in central Alabama. Something like 38 or 40 maps that he went through over a 200-year period documenting how Chugachetti and then the different Ufalas have been represented over time. That was one goal, was just to establish more of a history. And the rest of it was two pre-existing pieces of evidence that we wanted to investigate. There have been previous investigations of Chugachetti. There's an archaeologist named Barry Wharton who's had a lot of interest. He's been very valuable to historic preservation of Hernando County for decades. He had a lot of personal interest 
and he's written a lot about the environment and the history of the area in regards to Chukachetti. And he's been able to do some investigations, but he was mostly limited because he was working for private companies. While he did find occasional evidence of seminal occupation in the area, he was generally constrained to the area where he was working for companies, right? He wasn't able to really go to targeted areas on his own. He had some speculation as to location of some of the uh, possible locations of seminal components. In addition to that, Brent Wiseman and some of his students at the University of South Florida have been interested in a couple of investigations. And it was about oh, 15 years ago, Tony Carrier and Chris Bell two students from USF sought out and they did some excavations at a place called Hope Homestead. Hope Homestead had a relationship with one of the historic Hernando members. He was a descendant um, from that family and known that there was some artifacts related to the site. So he had suggested surveying that. Now, this is located uh, at least a mile west of the area traditionally thought as Chukachetti along the what's called the Chukachetti Prairie and Chukachetti Hammock. Hilly area that really doesn't seem like it'd be that great for agriculture and it's off the main road a little bit polluted. When they did excavations over the course of three or four years, the landowner who had recently purchased the property was going to build a house there and he was actually gracious enough to hold off building his house until they finished their excavation. They conducted excavations for several years, and then Chris Bell would also work at Fort Dade for a bit. But the problem is, is neither one of them did their master's thesis specifically on this topic. They both did seminal-related topics. The results were never formally reported. It was anecdotal. Subsequently, another student, Meg Stack, also started to do some work at Chukachetti under the direction of Brent Wiseman, but she was doing georeferencing, speculating on the location cartographically, but ended up not pursuing it for her PhD. So, in steps Gary. To what end? Wanted to verify what was there and get a sense of the landscape for ourselves. What's the significance of Hope Hill? Hope Hill or Hope Homestead, the largest assemblage of seminal material in the town. Seminal sites, while they shouldn't really be rare, there were a lot of seminal towns, despite the relatively short period that they occupied central Florida, they tend to be really shallow in the plow zone. They tend to be in areas that were frequently reused immediately following their abandonment. It's how Hope got there. In areas where the Seminoles occupied, so they would cultivate ground, they would clear areas, and they would do a lot of the hard work of agricultural preparation. What would happen is in 1842 and throughout the 1840s, 1850s, whenever settlers would move in, they typically would move in directly into the places associated with previous seminal settlements because it was less work to set up their own farms. Seminal sites tend to get destroyed because they got plowed over almost immediately. That was one problem. William Hope was one of those people who moved in immediately following the Armed Occupation Act of 1842 and initially had claims on the east and north side of the prairie and then subsequently in the mid-1800s moved up Hope Homestead. So there was at least a brief gap. What they ended up finding was over 20,000 artifacts came out of the site. However, it was a mix of prehistoric, seminal, and this later settler occupation. All of this was just jumbled together. Uh, it was reported that there wasn't a lot of stratigraphy. There weren't defined layers in the soil depicting different occupation periods. That was one thing that we wanted to test. And then we wanted to look at the artifacts first. One of the most notable things that was found there was an 1839 half dime that has two holes in it. The thought on this was this postdates the burning of Chugachatty in 1836 by Scott and Clinch. 
you have a common reuse of material. It's something you see with Native Americans in general. It's one thing we note with the Seminole is reuse of metals, sometimes glass, for other purposes. Things like coins could be made into little trinkets or ornaments. One possibility is that this half dime represents a Seminole artifact that would post-date the burning of the village. So this suggests that this could be one of the settlements that existed after the burning of the town, a refuge, which would explain why it's not really on the prairie, why it's not really in the, an agricultural area, why it's off the roads, and why it's secluded. This would have been outside of our model if I were to model where I would think Seminole villages would be. Our excavation came on and we confirmed a lot of the same things. We conducted soil coring and then shovel testing excavation of very small units throughout the area and saw the same thing, that the soil is very homogenized, artifacts are mixed, you get a whole variation in one small area. saw that there was a limited space. We stayed on the four acres of this one landowner. We didn't end up looking at any of the adjacent properties, but there was concise limit to the physical bounds of the site. And so it was a relatively small area. Wise, it wasn't the full assemblage that I would expect to see a large village have. What it looked like was maybe a prolonged encampment by a small number of people. We're left with two possibilities on this. This either represents a small settlement that existed after the burning of the town, or this was an area where you would have had families living associated with the town. You might have had Chukchetti Town Square, the square ground, the Tawa, the central organization of the town, and then you might have had residences scattered about the countryside, like you know we see at other places, like Nikasuki and all along the Toa Road. There's that possibility. A lot of it goes into how you interpret the half dime. Definitely a seminal component there, but doesn't appear to be the main village of Chukchetti. This coin is useful to you, but what's the harm with metal detecting and finding such coins and bringing them home? Well, it's certainly a neat artifact, I guess, to have in your own personal collection. Things like coins often give us the best reference for time period because a hard date, we know that nothing can be there before. We know that that object obviously wasn't there before 1839 and was sometime afterwards. That gives us our best hard date reference to that area because we can't use things like radiocarbon dating, something so recent. And even if we could, it wouldn't give such precise date. Things like that for coins are just great reference marks. Removing something like that, it takes out one very, very compelling piece of evidence right there. Metal detecting and excavation on these sites that if the site had had features related to the town or, or related to buildings or anything like that, other relic hunting has a distinct possibility of damaging that. That information usually isn't collected by relic hunters, so you'd have just permanent irreparable damage to the archaeological record. Even if somebody gives me that half dime years later, that really doesn't add the value of initially locating it with provenience. The other key thing that we wanted to test was the main thing where people have revolved around for Chukchetti, and that is a plot on the 1840s survey map. So immediately following Seminole Wars, a territory-wide survey was conducted. I'm sure Jerry Morris and Jeff Huff have talked about this in theirs. So this was done in the early 1840s. You'll see it sometimes published with different dates, sometimes called the 1847 GLO. This area was surveyed in 1843, and there's a square or rectangle that's placed that is distinctly marked Chokochetti Town. And it has a series, It's I believe it's 28 little uh, rectangles inside of it. There's a surveyor's mark for Chukachet. The question has been, does that represent something like a general vicinity marker saying Chukachet is somewhere in this area? 
does that represent, say, the central square ground? Or does that represent an actual village of Chukachetti? That's where everything has focused around. It's at the north end of the prairie. It seems like a real possibility. Over the last 10, 15 years, Butch Nipper and Jesse Marshall have done a series of brief documents on Chukachetti, outlining some of the engagements around the area. But one of the best things they did was they plotted where that square would be on modern maps, modern burial imagery and such. And this, unfortunately, would be south of the town of Brooksville, right where Highway 50 splits off from 98. The road goes right through the plot for Chukachetti. It had never really been formally tested when this had been plotted, and it was added as an archaeological site based on the comprehensive plan Ken Sutherland did, where it put a lot of sites that hadn't necessarily been confirmed on the comprehensive plan as a preemptive protection for that so that they would at least get some recognition. Because without this, people might have just continued going through without looking for Chukachetti at all. Was given the designation for the square. That was one of our main goals. If we did anything at all, was we really wanted to test the area around that square. With permission from Florida Department of Transportation, and then an adjacent property that's owned by the city of Brooksville, we were given permission to go out there, at least on the south side of the square that's outside the road, where we conducted electric shovel tests and then metal detecting. What was the time frame for this stage? The time frame, we did that over probably a couple of months, but technically and overall the work itself probably took less than two weeks. We had some volunteers help us one day with the shovel testing. I had a very good group of metal detectorist volunteers work with me throughout the project, so we were able to cover the metal detecting relatively quickly. What was the time frame for this project? This entire project has taken place over the last three years. Um, so let's see, we, we started this in August of 2019. Because of COVID, there ended up being extensions given to deal with any potential delays. In the fall of 2021, we have our draft report in to the National Park Service pending comments and edits. We've been working for this over the last three years. FDOT property and the city of Brooksville property were some of the first investigations that we did and then we were conducting tests and reanalysis of the artifacts from Hope Homestead simultaneously. These surveys are written for a purpose and for a customer. Who are these customers? Research archaeology is always kind of interesting because usually people who have a question, people who have land, and then you're granting agents. To some degree, there's all the customer. But in this case, it was Historic Hernando had their questions about Chukachetti. So we're sort of doing it on their behalf while the granting agency is the National Park Service. So the report has to be to the standards of the National Park Service and they get the copy. But the ultimate goal is to provide information for historic preservation and historic interpretation to Historic Hernando Preservation Society. National Park Service is the granting agency. Okay, you got sponsors, you got money, you got this grant and instructions and permissions. And what did you find? What we found was almost nothing. The area down there, any listeners, if you don't live in Florida, prairies mean something very different in Florida from where the rest of the United States. They are wet typically here. You go to Payne's Prairie, Payne's Prairie, except in extreme droughts, is a wet field. In fact, in the wettest season, it's a lake. That's what we mean by prairie. And then hammocks are typically the hardwood areas, a lot of times on the edges of some of these wetlands. Hammocks are nice because the pine flatwoods are typically not great nutritional-wise. They're not really great for agriculture. So hammocks tend to be your best 
your most fruitful area for growing for life in general, and then you've got access to the fresh water. This area is very low and nowadays serves as the drainage for books. Walking through there, like metal detecting the property is quickly walking away from mosquitoes at all times. When you get down there, it really doesn't look like an area that Native Americans would choose to live. If you don't have to live there, there's no reason why you probably would. Now, granted, again, it's worse because of modern development. What happened is the square itself, the portion that overlapped with the properties we were looking at, was in this poorly drained, low, generally wet area. Shovel testing produced nothing in that area. We did prime prehistoric sites in the vicinity in slightly drier grounds, the area where you could physically see the vegetation was better drier vegetation, things like live oaks. And so you could find prehistoric sites in the vicinity, but there was clearly nothing associated with the village. We had a couple of ways of looking at it that it could be general vicinity, could be a square ground, or it could be the entire village itself, right? From each of those, I would expect different radiating projections of artifacts. Even if you're not on the square itself, you should still get artifacts in the vicinity. People leave a lot of trash behind. Seminoles are no exception. We didn't find any of that. Mostly what we found was evidence of when the place had been logged, because this area has been logged repeatedly up until the late 20th century. And then over the course of the late 20th century, a series of different drainage canals have been moved through there. And then a power line corridor has been added. What we found was evidence of that. We'd find chains, hooks, a lot of stuff for ground alteration, but nothing specifically seminal related. As we got farther, but we also looked at other parts of the city of Brooksville property, also at the request of Historic Hernando, because there was speculation that there might be a road that would have led through there. You can see this in the orientation of the trees, that there are clearly sour orange trees and oak trees in a line. Definitely very linear and quite old. Not sure if they were quite old enough to be contemporaneous with Chukachetti, but old. That area was also metal detected. What we found is other scatters of prehistoric sites, which you know, like evidence that uh, uh, Dr. Wiseman has shown that seminal occupations do often overlap with prehistoric sites, but not always. A lot of seminal sites have a prehistoric component there, but not all prehistoric sites have a seminal component. Seminal components much shorter than several thousand years of prehistoric occupation. What we did find that potentially relates, we did find one musket ball, and then we found some horse tack, a mule shoe, a horseshoe, and then some other unidentified metal. So the musket ball is definitely a possibility. We have to think about three options. That is it a military musket ball? which would then mean that the diameter of the musket ball would be something like a 0 0.64, 0 0.65, maybe a 0.66. That would work in the 1816 Springfield muskets, 69 caliber muskets that they're using. Or it could be a seminal musket ball, which could be a whole variety of guns from British military guns ranging up to 75 caliber, Spanish guns that would have been around 72 to 69, U.S. military muskets. They had access to them from various defeats such as Dade's Battle and then all the way into hunting pieces, fowling pieces and such, which would have been smaller caliber. There is at least some overlap with the settler period where they could be out there hunting on their own property with muzzle loaders as well. Fortunately for Florida, that's a relatively short period compared to other places because you start getting 
cylindrical bullets, and then eventually cartridge weapons, more and more predominant throughout the mid-19th century, to be a seminal or a settler's weapon. However, since we didn't really find it in large quantities, it doesn't really appear to be associated with a skirmish, but rather maybe an activity like hunting. In this sense, it was indeterminate. The horseshoes and the mule shoe could be related to military activities. What we were able to show is that, at least on the south side of the road, there's definitely not a Seminole village. That square for Chukachetti appears to be a general vicinity marker. There's still a little bit that we could test on the north side, but again, I would expect a pretty large radiating area of artifact. So what did you conclude? Concluded that the archaeological site isn't there. Does that negate the highway marker that's there? Fort Hernando Preservation Society has a historic marker up there, and that's still perfectly fine because it's still representing the general vicinity of Chukachetti, which we know is related to that prairie and that hammock in some fashion. The question is exactly where was the seminal component located? So you began an exploratory portion of your excavation slash survey on that cartographic evidence that Johnson had established, he created a map of where seminal fields, seminal encampments, as well as the projection of possible towns and other military sites might be in relation to that square. We did selective shovel testing on certain properties, metal detecting only on certain properties, did find more prehistoric sites, but really not what we were looking for. We had lots of things like glass, ceramics, and some of that is stuff that, like at Hope Homestead, is stuff that you might see both the Seminoles and settlers have. Because the Seminole site would look like a settler site with the addition of a couple other things. You would identify it through something diagnostic, like Seminole brushed pottery. In addition to that, you might have things like glass beads, which were found at Hope Homestead and at LH Tekken. You porting diagnostic information into an assemblage like that. A lot of that stuff could be related to the military component, could be related to a Seminole component, but typically you'd go with the longest held component, which would be the subsequent homesteader occupation. And as for Chukachetti itself? Unfortunately, we weren't able to find Chukachetti proper or any of the other later towns associated with it. It definitely shows a distinct seminal presence in the area. It doesn't really do a whole lot to dismay the interpretations by Historic Hernando that this was a substantial place for the Muscogee and later the Seminole people. There's always more to be done. There's always more room for more archival work. The key thing that we're always looking for is the seminal component, the seminal perspective on all this. Unfortunately, everything is almost purely from the United States perspective or English or occasionally Spanish. The hope on this was that we would be able to test exactly what the layout of Seminole Village looks like. You have places like Painstown and Tlaquicaja have been tested to some degree with mixed results, right? Again, they suffered from a lot of the same problems, essentially agricultural damage. So we were hoping that we could find something where we could end up talking about more things like the red-white dichotomy, because we know that if black dirt was representing a red town, and a red town capitulates at the very beginning of the war, that being a red town doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a warlike town. We don't know if this is part of it, or if that red-white dichotomy had already dissolved by the start of a war, that this is a matter of agency rather than tradition, determining whether people wanted to resist removal or accept. And so it would have been nice to study something like that. And we're still hoping that we will find additional components to Chukachetti, but hopefully we will find good evidence that gives more information onto seminal ethnogenesis and seminal life outside of the war. But at the same time, you can only find what's there and what you have access to. And unfortunately, it appears that places like Black Dirt's town and maybe Fala Tustanagi's town 
are on mined out properties. It's property owned by CMEX. And actually, Mr. Wharton had found some old pottery that I don't think he had necessarily associated with one of these villages. I mean, he found it in one of his project areas. But again, the village itself would have been just outside of his project area. And then unfortunately, that was since destroyed. So due to a lot of preservation issues, it's going to be tough to find. But every little piece that we have helped. What was the heuristic value from this? It led into some other projects. We've had some interactions with the location for Fort Cross, and we hope to maybe do some investigation for there. I suspect that there's actually a seminal component below Fort Cross, a, a tendency to put occupations in area where fields known, and the survey maps do show fields around Fort Cross that could precede the fort. We'll also end up eventually putting up a historic marker for Fort Cross. We've got a historic work marker in the work for Camp Broadnax and the Brass Workshop. We're definitely moving forward, and we've got more targeted areas to go to in the future. And then we're also looking for other potential sites that could inform us on the region as a whole, Seminole life as a whole. It had mixed results, but there's a lot more areas to address in the future. Some of the wars related, we're always busy. Sean Norman, thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.sumnawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.